Well, good morning, everybody. I just, want, I just want to take a minute to pile on to what Jerry just said there, because baptism is a way that we profess our faith. Um, it's not means of salvation, like we're not saved because we're baptized, but in a, it's a way of showing our salvation. In other words, uh, it's a, we like to say it's an outward symbol of an inward decision we've made to follow Jesus. And so, but it's also a command. Baptism is a command from Jesus. In fact, for a large part of his ministry, uh, the message of Jesus became repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. Like those two things came together. Repentance and baptism were kind of two sides of the same coin. Uh, The idea here was that baptism was an immediate response to our own decision to follow Jesus. And so, uh, as Jerry said, some of you in the room were probably baptized as infants by your parents. Um, And I don't want to make light of that. I don't want to say that's not important because it is. Thank God for parents who like want their kids to grow up with a faith background. That's awesome that they did that. But still, it's not a personal response from you to your own faith, right? Does that make sense? Um, and, And so, I think it's important that if that's where you are and you think, well, I'm baptized because I was baptized as an infant, you need to think about and pray about making that decision to come forth and come public with your faith. At the same time, there are people who have come to Christ in the last months or even years, and you've grown in your faith, and uh, you started giving, and you started serving, and maybe you even started leading in a ministry or leading in a small group, and now you kind of think, well, gosh, I don't want to get baptized now. It's kind of too late, because people are going to think I'm weird. They already think I'm a Christian. So what's going to happen? Well, I just want to encourage you not to let the fear of what other people will think stop you from doing what God says is right. And then at the same time, there's a third group. And I think that third group is kind of people who have come to their faith recently in the last weeks or months. And you, you think, well, you know what? I just want to get my life together first and then I'll be baptized. I want to grow in my faith a little bit, see if this takes, right? It doesn't always take. I want to see if this takes and then I'll get baptized. But that's, that's not the purpose of baptism. The purpose of baptism is to have this accountability to be able to come forward and, and get in front of your church and in front of your friends and family and say, hey, I'm making this decision. You guys need to hold me accountable. And so I'm just going to say, if you're in one of those groups or any other group that you think you would need to be baptized, you have, I'm going to echo Jerry's permission. You have my permission to get up now and leave and go talk to him uh, about being baptized. We want to make sure that, um, that you're doing the right thing and we're not holding you back from making that profession for yourself. If you have your Bibles with you, open them to John chapter 12 or turn them on. If you've got your Bible on a phone, um, I love to see the warm glow of God's word in your face. Uh, it warms my heart. Uh, if you don't have either of those things, there should be one of these around you, uh, this blue Bible. It's page 750 in this Bible, John chapter 12. Again, we're continuing our series called Jesus Is. And what we've been doing is we've been asking this question, like, who is Jesus to you? And what we've tried to do over the past few weeks is grab some examples from Scripture of who the Bible says that Jesus is and bring those to you. And uh, we planned this out kind of as a five-message series. And then when we added Good Friday, we had a week that kind of popped open. And we didn't have something specific that we wanted to preach about this week. And I was so excited because this is a message I've been wanting to bring our church for a long time. And so um, I hope that you like it or no, I hope that you hate it. You'll probably hate it. And that's good because when we hate things, they start to grind on us, don't they? They start to sand off the rough edges. And so I hope this is as painful for you to hear as it was for me to write. Uh, Today's Palm Sunday. It's the day in the Christian calendar that kind of kicks off what we call Holy Week. Uh, It's the week that we celebrate and remember the final week in the life of Jesus. Uh, So Palm Sunday traditionally remembers the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem 
uh, on his way to the cross. And so he's riding in uh, to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. Uh, he rides into a raucous welcome. You remember, he, you, may, you may know this story. He's riding on a donkey, actually on the colt of a donkey, the Bible tells us, not on a horse like a king typically would. And we see um, this story captured in a few places in scripture, but we're gonna look specifically at John's account from John chapter 12. But before we do that, I wanna set it up by looking at what we talked about last week. And so if you missed last week, I'm gonna catch you up in two minutes or less. Uh, If you were here last week, it'll be a great review anyway. Jesus came to this place outside of Jerusalem, a, a town called Bethany. And he had friends that lived there, his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And he came there in this instance specifically because he heard his friend Lazarus was sick and dying. And in fact, by the time Jesus arrived at Bethany, you may remember Lazarus was already dead and and had been for four days. And so Jesus gets there, he takes his disciples, he sees the hurt in Lazarus' sister's eyes. Uh, He talks to them, he consoles them, he sees the hurt and hears the cries of the people around Lazarus, and he decides to raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, Jesus had done some really cool miracles before, but this was kind of the coup de grace of his ministry. This was the uh, really great miracle that not only capped off all the other miracles that he had done, but kind of foreshadowed what was going to happen in the next few weeks with his own resurrection, right? But, but for the people around who didn't know that, like to defeat death itself, that was a big deal. And the Bible tells us there were many witnesses who saw that happen. And Kevin Russell was here last week and he talked about this message or this story. And one of the things I loved about his message was he reminded us that it wasn't really about Lazarus at all. That in fact, we don't even hear from Lazarus ever again. We don't know what happened to him uh, because we don't hear from him, but we do know that he eventually died again, don't we? How do we know that? Well, because he's not here, <laughs> right? We don't see a lot of 2,000-year-old guys walking around. And so we think he would probably be on uh, the Willard Scott portion of the Today Show, right? If Lazarus was still here, um, Lazarus celebrates his 2,000th birthday today, everybody. Tell Lazarus happy birthday. Anybody remember Willard Scott? Is that, am, I, am I showing my age here? Okay, sorry about that. But we do, we don't know what happened to Lazarus after this, but we do know what happened to Jesus after this because we see that in scripture. And so immediately after Lazarus is raised from the dead, what we hear is that many of the people that saw this happen start following Jesus. They become believers in who he is, that many people, the Bible says, started to follow him, but a few were kind of ticked off and they went to the Pharisees or the religious leaders to tell on him, basically to say, hey, this Jesus, here's what he did. And um, it's for that reason, that's the, like the primary reason, that's the last straw in the mind of the Pharisees. It's the, it's the raising of Lazarus that made them decide to kill Jesus. That's what John tells us. And so Jesus goes into hiding. He goes off to this village called Ephraim. Now, Ephraim is named after one of the sons of Jacob. Um, it's a tribe of Israel, but this town is a place about 13 miles northeast of Jerusalem, and it's at altitude. It's up on a hilltop, so you can kind of see the valley all around you, so you're, you're alert to threats, and so it's a great place to hide out. So Jesus is there until the time for Passover comes. And Passover is a festival that all the Israelites celebrate. They celebrated for hundreds of years, and they celebrated the fact that when they were in, held captive by the Egyptians, that God... Um, protected them and passed over them uh, as he killed off the Egyptians so that they could escape. So God preserved his own people by taking someone else's life. And they celebrate that in Passover. And that's what Jesus is coming into Jerusalem to celebrate. So we're going to pick up in John chapter 12, verse 12. 
If you have your Bibles open there, John 12, 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now I'm gonna stop our passage right there for just a minute because I wanna give you a glimpse of the significance of this, the fact that they um, greeted him with palm branches. Why palm branches? This is a really important part of the story because palm branches in ancient Palestine represented um, peace and triumph and victory. So they're basically waving these branches at Jesus, exclaiming that he's going to bring triumph and victory and peace. And that word, Hosanna, you may know that word. You may have sang that word before. That word means salvation or save us. And and, um, uh, linguists who study uh, ancient languages would tell us that there's kind of an immediacy to this idea of Hosanna. So that maybe the best translation is save us now. So just paint, put this picture together. You've got Jesus riding into town on this little baby donkey. Um, not at all what you expect. And then uh, these people are waving palm branches saying, there is the king who's gonna bring victory and triumph and peace to us. Jesus, save us now. Bring peace and victory and triumph. So who are the people that are in the crowd? Well, John tells us just a couple of verses later in verse 17. He says, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word and many people, because, he had, 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 because they had heard he performed this sign, went out to meet him. So in this crowd, um, we have disciples, yes. We have the men and women who have followed Jesus and they have helped fund his ministry They've helped lead him. They've seen him perform miracles. They kind of know what they're getting, right, in Jesus. They know who he is. But then there are these other people who had heard the rumors or who had seen the miracles, and they believed they were getting a king who was going to restore Israel to military prominence, that he was going to bring triumph and victory over their oppressors. In fact, many scholars believe that there were actually no palm trees growing in Jerusalem at the time this happened. There are palm trees there today, but they were imported from Jericho, which is about 25 miles away. And uh, which means that the people who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and heard that he was going to Passover would have gone 25 miles out of their way, likely to grab palm branches, to bring them into the city, to wave them at Jesus. In other words, what I'm trying to say is this was not a spontaneous event. This is something that was planned and hoped for and expected, knowing that he was coming into the Passover to anoint him, to proclaim him as king. But probably not the kind of king that Jesus had in mind. They only knew what Jesus could do. Many of the people in this crowd didn't really know who he was, right? I mean, if you watch a man raise somebody from the dead, and you've got this idea in your mind that the king is coming, who's going to be a great military leader, you immediately think, how great will that be on the battlefield, right? Like if a soldier on our battlefield, on our side dies, Jesus just raised him back from the dead. I mean, we don't, we don't need an endless supply of soldiers to fight this war. We've, we got 10 guys and Jesus just keeps bringing them back and bringing them back and bringing them back. I mean, that's a great kind of king to have if you're going into battle. And healing people, really great skill to have, right? Somebody gets hit with a spear or cut with a sword, Jesus heals them right back up, right back on the battlefield. Get back in there. Get back in the game, son. Rub some dirt on it, right? So that's the kind of king they're looking for. And I think that's why in Luke's account of this same event, 
Um, what we see is Jesus, when he sees all the people greeting him, welcoming, walk, welcoming him into Jerusalem, he starts crying and weeping over the city. He's saying, oh, Jerusalem, you just don't get it. You just don't understand. I didn't come for vengeance. I came for love. But can you blame them? Can you blame the people in the crowd? I mean, think how long they had hoped for their king. And in fact, it was probably even longer than we could understand. Because if you go back several hundred years before this, you go back to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, what we see is the nation of Israel longing for a king. They had up until this time been led by judges. Judges were men and women that were appointed by God. They were often prophets so they could hear the word of God, but they would also um, help decide disputes. See, Israel lived in pretty good harmony for the, for the most part, especially compared to uh, nations around them because they had this shared uh, idea of right and wrong, this, this law that was given to them. And so they kind of lived in harmony, but when they have disputes, they would raise it to a judge. The judge would decide, and these judges became the prominent leaders. Well, Samuel is one of those men, and Samuel is also a prophet of God. He speaks to the Lord. And uh, eventually, the oppression starts to close in on the nation of Israel. They're surrounded by their enemies on all sides, and they come to Samuel. The people of Israel come to Samuel and say, we want a king. All those nations out there, they all have a king and, and they're strong and they're powerful and we need a king who will be strong and powerful for us. And Samuel, who's a great man of God, goes before the Lord and he prays and he cries out to God and he says, God, they want a king, what should I do? And God responds to Samuel and says, Samuel, these are my people and I love them. And I really wish they would let me be their king. He says, but... Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting God. So go give them what they want. Go give them a king. Isn't sometimes our worst punishment when God gives us exactly what we ask for? You ever have that happen in your life that you think you know the right thing and so you pray for that over and over and over again and just like the persistent widow, you feel like God eventually says, all right, fine, I get it, I give up. And then you get exactly what you've asked for and then down the line you go, oh crap. Why did I ask for that? Why didn't I just trust that his will was better? Why did I think that my ways were higher than his ways? He tells me that are not in scripture, right? In those moments, we just kind of go, oh, what was I doing? And I think that's where we find Israel after this. So God gives them a king, this king named Saul. And I got to tell you, if you were casting a movie and you were looking for a king, you would pick Saul. He's the guy. He's tall. He's a head taller than everybody else. He's handsome. He's strong. He's a great warrior. He looks perfect for the part, but he turns out to be a disaster as king. So the first time we see Saul in 1 Samuel, um, he is looking for some donkeys. His dad's donkeys have escaped and we see Saul roaming in the countryside and while he's looking for donkeys. And while this happens, Samuel is over here talking to God and God says, hey, go find this man. You're gonna anoint him as king. And so Saul's looking all over. He looks for three days. He can't find these donkeys and he comes into the town where Samuel's staying and somebody tells him there's a man of God that can tell you where your donkeys are. And so he goes to Samuel and he says, hey, I'm looking for my donkeys. Somebody says, you know where they are. And Samuel says, well, don't worry about your donkeys, but let me tell you this, God has appointed you to be the king of Israel. And Saul's like, well, that's not really what I signed up for, but that's cool, okay. Um, and then he goes on to be king. And at first he's a good king, but then he turns out to be a disaster. And they should have known that. 
because you should never choose as king a man who can't even find his own donkeys. <laughs> I just let you finish that joke. Um, he, he starts to follow Jesus or starts to follow God, but then eventually his selfishness takes over. His own desires become stronger than um, desiring to satisfy God and um, his ability to protect and rule the people is gone because he doesn't have their interest at heart anymore. And so next, God appoints a different man to be king, a man by the name of David. And David is a good king. The Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. And he's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but he's a good king and he's constantly seeking God and he's praying and he's worshiping and he's giving thanks. And the nation of Israel prospers under David. And because of the faithfulness of David and because of the grace of God and the favor of God on the nation of Israel, God says that David will always have a descendant on the throne. By the way, did you know that Jesus was descended from the line of David? And now he walks the earth hundreds of years later. Jesus is walking the earth hundreds of years later. And the people of Israel are once again under oppression. They're they're under the brutal rule of the Roman empire, surrounded by their enemies. They're strangers in their own land. And now they think that maybe, just maybe, this Jesus is the king we've always wanted. In fact, just look at Luke's account of this, what we call the triumphal entry. In Luke 19, 38, they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Does that sound familiar to anybody? You know, I think the last time I read a phrase like that was at Christmas. Do you remember that in Luke 2? Luke 2, when the angels appear to the shepherds and they, and they say this, they say, glory to God in highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. This is a chorus of angels singing this about Jesus. And now, 30 some years later, as he rides into Jerusalem, this chorus of people are proclaiming him as king and saying the same thing. But what kind of king? I mean, that's the, that's the question we all need to answer, right? What kind of king did Jesus come to be? See, it seems that everybody wanted a little something different from King Jesus. There were, there were those people that wanted the, the military king. And I'm guessing that some of the disciples are probably in that group because we see the disciples ask later, uh, they ask this question, Lord, are you now going to restore Israel to prominence? Like they, they want this military king, this king who's gonna come in and crush their oppressors and crush the Roman empire. In fact, uh, later in this week, we see this very famous story. I mean, even if you don't know your scripture very well, if you're new to Christianity or you're just checking Jesus out, you probably know that the guy who betrayed Jesus to the Pharisees, to the rulers, was a man named Judas, right? And Judas uh, was a follower of Jesus, followed him for much of his ministry, and then in the end, gave him up for 30 pieces of silver. And we often say, you know, that Judas was a, a greedy man, um, that, he, that he was tired of, uh, of following Jesus, maybe that he just wanted the money or what, whatever it was. But a lot of scholars believe that Judas wasn't trying to give Jesus up to have him killed, but instead was trying to advance this military agenda that Judas wanted to see the kingdom restored to Israel. And he knew what Jesus could do because he'd walked with him for so long and he'd seen the miracles and he'd seen the power of the Holy Spirit that was available to Jesus. And he, that some people believe that he turned Jesus over to the rulers as his way of saying, Jesus, get out there, get out on your stage, go, go show them what you can do, like to advance that military rule because he knew the power that was available to Jesus. So there's that group. Now the Romans were asking a different question. 
If you watch his trial over this week, we know that Judas gives up Jesus to the leaders. He gets tried before the Roman Empire because the Romans had rule over Israel at that time. And he goes before a man named Pontius Pilate, who's the governor in this area. And they're asking a different question. They're asking this question. Are you the king of the Jews? That's what they want to know. See, there's this this group of people that are living among the Romans and they're kind of weird. They, they look different. They talk different. They have their own language. They worship only one God, which is kind of strange. Um, and uh, they have their own like code of conduct. And, and, and so they're wanting to know, are, are you the king of those people? Because we already have our own king. Like Caesar is our king. So what kind of king are you? And in fact, even after the trial on the, on the way to the cross, they laughed at him and they ridiculed him. They spat at him and they they thrust a crown on his head, not a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. And they put a sign over Jesus's head that said, King of the Jews, right? That's the kind of king that they thought Jesus was. And and that sign, that infuriated the Pharisees or the the leaders, the religious leaders of the day. See, they didn't believe that Jesus was king of the Jews. They they wanted the Romans to write, no, don't write king of the Jews there. He's not king of the Jews, right? He claims to be the king of the Jews. That's what you should write. So the Pharisees, uh, they were okay with Jesus being the leader of this like ragtag band of fishermen. That's cool if you want to lead them. But when you start drawing normal people, normal Jews into your fold, when you start gathering a following that's bigger than our following, well, we've got to do something about that. We're going to have to get rid of that guy. That was a little too much. And what we see in this story, even in the last week of Jesus's life, is that everyone wanted something different from King Jesus. And that may seem crazy to you, especially with 2,000 years of, of hindsight. If you're sitting here and you're a Christian and you're in this room and you think, man, why didn't they just get it? But the truth is this, don't we all want something different from Jesus? I mean, if I were to go around this room right now and ask you for your biggest prayer request, I bet we'd have dozens and dozens of different answers, right? Everybody wants something a little different. And and my guess is that if you have a big prayer request now, it's probably different than it was a year ago or two years ago. We all want something different from Jesus. So we can shake our heads and tusk, tusk at the Israelites all we want, but we probably just need to admit that a lot of times what we really want is a God, a king who's created in our own image. Right? We, we, just like Saul was, we want to be able to design a God or design a king, design a savior who meets all of our needs, who believes what we already believe. And the way that that often plays out is that when we come to a hard teaching of Jesus or we come to a hard part of scripture, it's something difficult we don't agree with, instead of allowing it to change us and shape us, which is what we should do, right? When we come to a hard teaching, uh, if we believe that what's in this book is true, and that it was said by a guy that we believe to be the king and the savior of the world, shouldn't we just go, oh, I guess I need to change my thinking about that. But instead of doing that, what we sometimes do is we just ignore that. Hey, you know what? Just skip that page. Let's, let's, don't, let's don't read this, this section right here. Let's just cut. Let's don't teach this section right here because we don't really understand it. We don't really think it says what we wanted to say. So let's find a different verse that says something that we already believe because we want a king who's designed in our own image. So you know, that command can't be right because that doesn't sound very compassionate. Or when he said this, I, I think he really meant that. That's, that's kind of what he meant. And as a result of this, let's call it this selective kingship. <laughs> the result of that is in the end, we decide to let, that when we decide to let Jesus be ruler over our lives, we let him reign over some parts and then ask him to stay out of some parts. 
Like I want Jesus to guide my job search, but keep him out of my sex life. Or I want Jesus to be present in my marriage, but he needs to stay out of my pocketbook. Or I want friends who follow Jesus, but I still wanna be able to gossip when I want to. Or I want your politics to align with Jesus, but when I see something that he says that doesn't agree with my politics, I'm just gonna ignore that part. Is this starting to hurt anybody yet? Because it hurt me as I was writing it out. How about this? Uh, I wanna marry a godly person, but until I meet him or her, I'm just gonna play around a little bit. How about this? We, uh, I want my kids to follow Jesus, but I don't wanna be their example. I'm not talking about if you're just coming to your faith, if you're just learning who Jesus is, it's natural, okay, hear me out. It's natural to trust Jesus with part of your life and see how he does with that and then start to give, him, give it over to him, give it over to him, give it over to him. But what happens sometimes is those of us who have been following Jesus for years and years, and we would claim to be Christians and we claim that Jesus is the center of our life and then we see something in scripture or something he says uh, that we don't agree with, that we knock it out of our lives, we ignore it or we allow Jesus to be king over part of our heart. Right? We, we went our kind of king, and that's explicitly not the kind of king that Jesus came to be. You know, we can, we can learn a lot about Jesus, obviously, by studying um, the, the, the Gospels, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament. Um, they're really helpful, really useful for us to understand like, who Jesus is. They have four different accounts of his life, but we can learn even more by reading in the Old Testament uh, what are called messianic, messianic prophecies. These are passages in the Old Testament that are said to be about the Messiah who was to come. And there are uh, hundreds of these prophecies in the Old Testament. Some scholars say as few as 191. Some say as many as over 400. But the truth is that as we read them, we see that Jesus in, humanity, in his humanity fulfilled them all. And one of these is a psalm. It's a messianic psalm that predicts what this coming king, what this Messiah would be like. It's Psalm 2, and you can read it in your Bible. You can read it on the side screen. I'm just gonna read the whole thing because I think it speaks to this moment. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. You know, that's one of the things that God said to Jesus when he was baptized. You are my son. Uh, he said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Do you see throughout this passage, God is saying of Jesus, I have installed my king, He's my king. He's on my mountain, my holy mountain, the king of all the nations that rulers tremble around him. And then he says, but you will be blessed if you follow him. You will be blessed if you worshiped him. You will be blessed if you trust him in him. It's clear if Jesus is who he says he is. If Jesus is who God says he is, they cannot be king of part of your life. In fact, let's just say it this way. Jesus is either king of everything 
or he's nothing. Please don't make the mistake of trying to let Jesus be the king of part of your life. Please don't make the mistake of thinking he's kind of important to me. Right? He cannot be part king. He, 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 can either be, he cannot be king of part of your heart. Can you imagine the songs that we would sing? Uh, let the king of part of my heart be, you know, how kind of good is our God? You know, like, no. He cannot be the king of part of your heart. He won't be the Lord of part of your life. Think about this. Think about this. All right, fast forward through all this that happens this last week of Jesus' life and Holy Week, right? He's, he's, he's betrayed by one of his friends. He's, he's tried. He's, he's beaten and whipped within an inch of his life. He's made to carry his own cross through the streets and then he's nailed to a cross and he's in his last moments, he's there on the cross and he's, he's nailed to this cross and there's people watching this happen. What kind of person comes to see a crucifixion? Well, there's, there's two kinds of people here. There are the scoffers. There are the people who were involved, the people who hated Jesus, the people who were part of the crucifixion, the people who were casting lots for his clothes, the ones who we're laughing at him and saying, hey, if you're the son of God, why don't you come down off that cross? There's, there's that crowd, they're there. And then on the other side are the people who loved him. There's the apostle John, there's uh, his mother. There's his friend Mary and Mary Magdalene, a few others. There's, there, there's the scoffers and the followers. There are no disinterested parties at the foot of the cross. There's nobody there going, oh, I like that guy. He was kind of a good teacher. They're, they're not there to see that. Why would you watch that? There's the people who are all in with Jesus. And there's the people that thought, well, you know, he's a liar. He pulled the wool over their eyes. Or, man, that guy was crazy. Did you hear him teach? There's those people. And there's the people that said, he's the king. He's the Lord. And even one of the guys there even changes sides in the middle of this whole thing. There's this Roman guard that's there to guard Jesus. This is centurion and he sees what happens and he sees Jesus died and he goes, surely that man was the son of God. Where do you sit at the foot of the cross? Are, are you a scoffer? Are you a mocker? Or is he your king? he's the son of God, then shouldn't he be king of everything? And if he's king of everything, would you let him be king of your life? He's either king of everything or he's nothing. Who is Jesus to you? Let's pray together. Oh, Lord. I admit that sometimes I am really tempted to make you the king of most of my life and to give you power and reign over almost everything. And God, I was reminded this week as I was preparing this message that that's not the kind of king you wanna be. Jesus, you don't wanna be the king of part of my heart or part of my life or part of our hearts or part of our lives. And there, everybody in this room, we're all at a different place on our journey of faith, Lord. But we know that your deepest desire is to be king of everything, to be king over all of us. So Lord, we need your help. Would you allow your Holy Spirit to work in us this week and to rest loose from our grasp those things that we have not allowed you into? God, would, we, would you help us to elevate you 
to exalt you as king of all things so that people in our lives would know that you are king of everything in my life, that you're king of everything in our lives, that we don't wanna be the people at the foot of the cross who are laughing and mocking. We wanna be those who are raising you up and saying, this man is the son of God. He is the king of everything. God, we come before you now. We worship you because of who you are. Pray these things in Jesus' name.